Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Do you remember what you were like at 17 years old? What kind of things were you doing at the age of 17? Please don't answer that out loud. I've read some pretty remarkable things that some 17-year-olds have accomplished. Uh, you know that the Brazilian soccer player known as Pele, he was only 17 when he scored his first World Cup goal. He became the youngest ever World Cup scorer person. <laughs> there was a computer programmer, a teenager who built an app and sold it for $30 million to Yahoo when he was 17 years old. And then there was one boy I read about who graduated from NYU when he was 13 and then went on to Mount Sinai School, School of Medicine and graduated from the School of Medicine at 17 years old, becoming the world's youngest physician. Now, those are some pretty remarkable 17-year-olds. Were you like that when you were 17? Yeah, those weren't the kinds of things I was doing either. At 17 years old, I was a pretty dysfunctional kid. I was a pretty, a pretty angry teen. I turned 17 um, in October of 2004. Um, and that December, for example, uh, I got into a fist fight with my father. Ended up shattering a bunch of bones in my hand. I still have two plates and eight screws uh, in my hand to this day. Needed surgery to repair that. I had some pretty unhealthy relationships at the time. I wasn't interested a whole lot in what God wanted for me. I didn't think about a whole lot about what his plans were for me. And honestly, I didn't think that he had much of a, of a plan for me. I didn't think he had much of a destiny for me uh, with all of my issues and, and all of my baggage. Um, I didn't have a sense of direction for where I was going in life. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I had two sisters who I always argued with and rarely tolerated. Um, I had, and I would, this is how I would have described them at 17, I had an older rebellious sister who was always super sensitive and emotional and I was always making her cry. And then I had a younger bratty sister who was spoiled and she liked to push my buttons and then when I would retaliate after she pushed my buttons, she would then tattle on me and then I'd get in trouble for that. Um, and to be fair to them, I was definitely um, my mom's favorite. Love you, mom. So it was a pretty crazy house, pretty dysfunctional home. Um, and my parents come from dysfunctional homes. Their parents come dis from dysfunctional homes. And you can actually keep following that all the way back until you get to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? Dysfunction just passes through the generations until... Christ comes and puts an end to that. But many of us come from families marked by things like anger, jealousy, favoritism, 
uh, pain and rejection. And yet none of these factors, not one of these factors can disrupt God's plans for us. None of these factors can disrupt whatever God's purposes are for us. So this morning we're beginning a new series that we've titled For Good, The Life of Joseph. And and we're going to be opening up to Genesis 37 in a minute where the Bible introduces us to quite a remarkable 17-year-old named Joseph. Now, Joseph stands out as a remarkable character, uh, not because of his accomplishments, uh, remarkable not because of uh, any of his achievements or education or credentials or kind of uh, even because of any kind of athletic ability. He's remarkable because of the way he simply follows God. And it's a remarkable story because God sovereignly used his bad situation for good. And it's remarkable, too, because Joseph happened to come from quite a dysfunctional family, maybe even a family like the one that you grew up with. So what we're going to learn from these early years of Joseph's life this morning is that God's plan for your future is not determined by your family's past. Understand that God's plan for your future, whatever it is that God has planned for you, whatever it is that he's purposed for your your future, it is not at all determined by your family's past. No matter how dysfunctional it may have been, no matter how painful, no matter how messed up it might have been, nothing in your past, nothing in your family's past can thwart that which God has planned for you. And by the way, this is one of the beautiful things about Scripture, right? If the Bible only gave us stories of people who come from uh, these awesome, well-adjusted, healthy backgrounds, and then they grew up to be great men and women of God, we would probably get very discouraged. But instead, the Bible talks about life as it really is. It's difficult. It's messy. It's filled with strained relationships and dysfunctional families. It's unfair, and it's even violently jealous. And this is, in fact, what life was like for Joseph growing up in Jacob's family and his household because Jacob's family contained all of the ingredients for a psychological nightmare. So our passage this morning focuses on on four specific issues that combine to generate uh, this serious dysfunction that we see and all the the relational problems going on in in Jacob's family. So here is the, the first precipitating problem is that Joseph tattles on his brothers. All right, so this chapter, chapter 37, begins by telling us the story uh, of Joseph's father, Jacob. Now, if you recall, just before we studied through the book of Galatians, we studied the life of Abraham. Now, Abraham uh, covers uh, about Genesis 12 through 22, and we went uh, through those chapters looking at the life of Abraham. We went into Galatians, and the reason why we're going back and not picking up in uh, the story of Isaac Uh, Esau and Jacob is because just a few years ago we actually covered those chapters uh, in the series that uh, we went through called Never Too Late to Fix a Family and those sermons are still available online on our website so you can go back and pull those up. But it is really important though to understand Joseph's story in context so we're going to be talking about some of the background information as we work our way through the passage uh, this morning. So let's jump right into Genesis 37 verse 1. It says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. 
Okay, so Genesis 37 opens. It introduces us immediately to Joseph's father, Jacob. Now, Jacob went by another name. He went by the name Israel. Israel literally means God strives. And and Jacob's name was changed to Israel in that that weird episode that you read some chapters earlier where uh, Jacob is actually wrestling with the angel of the Lord and then God changes his name from from Jacob to Israel. Now, um, this is quite an improvement over his name, Jacob, because the name Jacob literally means deceiver or usurper, because that is actually an appropriate word that would characterize much of uh, Jacob's life when you read his life in Genesis. So Jacob was an aging man by the time uh, Joseph was born. So you need to consider the fact that some of uh, of Joseph's, uh, the, the, Joseph's birth as when Jacob was 90, that, that gave Jacob a, a new sense of, of, of life, a new, a new reason to live. It gave him a new lease on life. And you need to remember, too, that Joseph's mother was Rachel. And Rachel was the wife that Jacob truly, truly loved. So you can see a little bit of a timeline up here. We'll, we'll throw that up just so you could track everything from Abraham to where we are now. So Jacob was Abraham's grandson, right? Abraham had his son of promise, Isaac, the one that God uh, promised to Abraham and Sarah. Then Isaac eventually had two sons. Isaac's two sons were Jacob and Esau. Well, when Jacob was a young man, you see uh, him deceiving Esau into uh, giving up his birthright. So again, you go back and you see some deception even as early as Jacob being a young man. Well, then sometime after that, Jacob goes on and you see him falling in love uh, with this uh, woman, Rachel, and he wanted to marry her. So in order for him to marry Rachel, Jacob uh, committed uh, to Rachel's father, Laban. He committed to work seven years for him. And at the end of the seven years, uh, Laban promised that he'd be able to marry Rachel. Um, so on Jacob's wedding day, after those seven years, Laban pulls a quick one, tricks Jacob, and Jacob ends up marrying Leah, Rachel's uh, older, um, less attractive sister. Well, when Jacob realized what happened, he was pretty upset, but he then commits to working another seven years for Laban, at which time he would then uh, finally get to marry Rachel. So 14 years the dude worked for Laban in order to, to, to marry the one that he really loved. Now, it's already obvious that this family is not off to a good start because none of this stuff is normal. I mean, within the next years, Leah ends up giving Jacob seven children. She, Leah bear, bears him uh, six sons and one daughter. And then Jacob also then fathers four other sons from two concubines. So now you got Leah, Rachel, and two others. So there's four women, four wives. And then eventually, Jacob's first love and and favorite wife, Rachel, does end up giving birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, Benjamin being the youngest. Now, you want to talk about some dysfunction. I mean, just picture yourself in that kind of house You can picture the whole scene. Here's the man Jacob living with four women who bore him a total of 13 children. But even among those four women, there's there's rivalry. He really only loved one of them, which and that would have added a huge element of drama to the whole story. And not only that, among the 13 children, Jacob really only truly loved one of them. He had a favorite, and his favorite was Joseph. In fact, verse 2 then introduces us to some of the people while also giving us a glimpse into the young Joseph tattling on some of his brothers. Verse 2 says, These are the generations of Jacob. 
Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and those were his father's wives, the two handmaidens. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph is out and about, and he's working as a shepherd uh, on the fields alongside some of his half-brothers in the land of Canaan. They're back in the land of Canaan. Remember, that's the, the land that God promised uh, to uh, Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. And then, uh, while they're out there uh, shepherding, Joseph observes his brothers doing something shady, getting into some kind of trouble. Doesn't say what it was, but he then goes and gives a bad report to the father. He tells Jacob what was happening. And we don't know whether or not uh, Joseph was simply doing this, to be honest. Maybe the half-brothers were doing something really serious. Or if Joseph was just trying to be, you know, a younger sibling who tattletales on the older siblings all the time, um, as we know what that's like. But right after Joseph tattles on his brother, though, we, we see even part of the bigger issue and see the bigger issue really happening is that Jacob is treating Joseph with favoritism. So that's the second precipitating factor here. Jacob treats Joseph with favoritism. And verse three then clues us in on the fact that Jacob was playing favorites. He says this, Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. So Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved his other sons. And part of the reason for this favoritism is because Jacob had Joseph later um, in life when God uh, miraculously opened the womb of Rachel so Rachel could give birth to two sons. But part of the problem was that Jacob didn't keep his favoritism under control. He paraded it around. He made it very obvious, very public for all the brothers. We're told here that Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colors. Now this robe would have been um, a tunic with really long sleeves and the length of the tunic would have went down all the way down to the ankles. And what a, a tunic like this would represent is, is authority. It would represent uh, nobility and leadership. So think about it, though. Joseph, who was a, also who would be out in the fields and shepherding and stuff or, or working agriculture, whatever it was he would be doing, he would not be able to work in this kind of robe. Right? That's, like, uh, that's like Matt uh, going to his landscaping business in a three-piece suit. Like You just don't wear a three-piece suit when you go in and do landscaping. Well, same way you wouldn't wear a tunic like this if you're going out in the fields, if you're shepherding, if you're doing agricultural-type work. So, but by giving Joseph this elaborate coat, Jacob was sending the message to Joseph that, that he can wear this coat. He can wear this beautiful garment. Because he doesn't have to work like his other brothers do. He's the favorite. Now here's the kicker. See, Jacob, of all people, should have known better than to show this kind of favoritism. Why? Because he himself was subject, as a young boy, to favoritism that his father uh, showed to his brother. See, his dad Isaac, when you go back a few chapters, you see his dad Isaac loved Esau more. The reason Isaac loved Esau more because Esau was the, the rugged, outdoor man. He, that, that, that was the kind that, that Isaac liked. Jacob, on the other hand, didn't want to really be outdoors. He'd rather be in the kitchen learning to cook with his mom. 
So you'd think, though, that Jacob would have learned from this out of his own experience because he favored one son and Rachel favored another son, and that caused problems. But as often as happens with people who become parents, Jacob simply perpetuated the same sins of his parents down into his children. And as a result, his favoritism of Joseph simply poured gasoline on the flames of hatred that his brothers already had. Because what we see next is that the brothers cannot tolerate Joseph. That's the next precipitating problem. The brothers cannot tolerate Joseph. Look at verse 4. It says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. See, Jacob made it clear that he loved Joseph more than he loved the other siblings. It was obvious to them in the way Jacob doted over Joseph. So they could see this on a daily basis. It was always in front of their eyes. And what might have been uh, something that started as just minor, simple jealousy, over time it began to grow into anger and then envy, then bitterness, and eventually pure hatred. They had come to despise their younger brother so severely that they couldn't even say a nice word to him. They didn't even want to talk to him. Now, can you imagine the mounting pressure in that kind of atmosphere, in that home? Right? It's like a giant powder keg about to explode. And if you grew up in that kind of family, you know exactly what that's like, just waiting for something to just go off and explode in your house. Now, can you relate to any of this so far? Can you see yourself at all in Jacob or, or in Joseph or maybe even in Joseph's brothers? I love the way one commentator put it. He said this, he said, some of us may have Jacob's problem. When children are small, they do not occupy much space, though they may occupy a lot of time and attention. But gradually, those of us who are parents become aware that our space and time are increasingly filled by powerful young minds, hearts, and wills, all of them different from each other and from us. Some are agreeable and others problematic, if not downright difficult. It is so easy then to favor the children that are like us and to distance ourselves from those who are unlike us. We may, of course, struggle to be fair, but we sometimes fail, if not in our own eyes and in those of our children, don't we? And some of our parents failed too. We may have been like Joseph and felt the glow of basking in a parent's smile and may also have suffered the consequences because our siblings were not treated in the same way. Or we may have been like Joseph's brothers and known how hard it is not to be the favorite. As a result, we may still be dealing with resentment. Our parents may be long gone, but the family is still torn apart by old resentments, envies, and tensions. Just think, for example, of how many families you know, whether Christian or not, who are at war over family legacies. See, I think many of us can relate in some way, shape, or form to Joseph's story here. But his story is far from over. In fact, it keeps getting worse before there's even a glimmer of hope. See, if the brothers couldn't tolerate him before, they're really, really going to fester in their hate for him with this next precipitating event where Joseph now goes and tells his brothers about his dreams. Joseph tells about his dreams. Look at verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Okay, so what were the specifics of this dream then that provoked his brother's anger? Look at verses 6 and 7. Joseph said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it 
and bowed down to my sheaf. So Joseph tells his brothers about this dream he had. They're all in his dream doing something that they probably often did. They're out in the fields. They're binding up sheaves of grain. Now, now a sheaf of grain is simply you, you would take the, the single stalks of grain and you'd bundle them together. That bundle was called a sheaf. So that's what they would do. And they, they would bundle them because it'd make it easier to carry, make them easier to transport. So in Joseph's dream, all the brothers harvest their grain. They put them into sheaves. And then in his dream, um, all their 11 sheaves bow down to his one sheaf as his sheaf stands upright and continues to grow. Now, I can't help but wonder what in the world Joseph was thinking, telling his brothers this dream. I mean, wasn't it by now obvious to him that his brothers could not stand the sight of him? It says they hated him. I mean, like, you have to pick up on that. He had to be self-aware enough. They already hated him. They already refused to speak any kind words to him. So is he thinking that they're somehow going to celebrate this dream? Is Joseph simply saying what comes to mind without any forethought, or is he just trying to provoke his brothers the typical way a younger sibling would provoke their older siblings? And we can't say for sure, but what we do know is that this dream is significant, and Joseph does recognize that. And as we'd expect, though, this only further frustrates the brothers. Look at verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And now the text doesn't come uh, right out and say it yet, but as we'll see in the weeks to come as Joseph's story progresses, the dreams that Joseph dreamed did in fact come from God. The, 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 uh, the origin was with God. And there's an important thing here to be said about dreams um, as a little side note. See, the 66 books of the Bible do record many, many instances of God speaking through dreams. And those times where he would speak through dreams, he would then provide an interpretation of those dreams, and then he would perfectly fulfill every single event told in those dreams, because that's what happens if it truly is from God. But there is a very important distinction to be made between dreams that have their origin in God and dreams that have their origin in our brain activity. Um, Two very different things. So, yes, I do believe that God uh, can still speak through dreams. Um, you know, I, I hear many uh, incredible reports from Muslim countries, for example, of Muslims being converted um, because of a dream that ends up leading to their salvation, to their uh, seeing Jesus as the Messiah and their trusting in Jesus for their salvation. So, so yes, I do think that it is possible, but... You have to understand that wherever the spirit is moving, Satan is also there trying to distract and trying to distort the truth. So if you really want to hear the voice of God, church, here it is. It's right here. You don't have to go looking for anything else. The voice of God is right here in the scripture. Scripture itself tells us in Hebrews, it says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, including visions and dreams. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So this right here is where Jesus speaks to us because these are the words that testify about him. If you think that God is speaking to you in any way, in any shape, in any form, that word 
or that, that dream that you think might come from God, realize that it must be subject to, it must be measured by, it must be surrendered under the authority of God's inerrant word because if it contradicts it in any way, shape, or form, what you have is not from God. Please understand that. I love the way author John Lennox said it. He said, it's one thing when God sends dreams. It's a completely different thing when people imagine that every dream that they have has some kind of spiritual significance so that in the end, they unbalance and become more interested in their dreams than in reading scripture and praying. Such imaginings can lead to spiritual and moral shipwreck. And then Lennox went on to describe a man that he knew who uh, ended up selling his Bible, saying he didn't need it since God now communicates with him only through visions and dreams. And, of course, God told him in one of those visions, very sadly, that he needed to leave his wife. That's not of God. See, you and I don't need dreams to follow God or to hear from him. We have his word right here, and he's given us his spirit to instruct us in wisdom and to instruct us in knowledge. But how incredible it is, though, that we get to read and study about the times before the completion of the canon of Scripture when God did, in fact, speak in very significant way, ways through dreams, even dreams that would lead to envy and hatred, just as Joseph's second dream does. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, Then he, Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now listen, I'm willing to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt, right? Maybe his first dream just like excited him so much that he just like couldn't contain it. He couldn't keep it to himself. Or maybe like it truly confused him and he really wanted to tell his brothers, hoping for like some positive feedback. But honestly, after seeing how his first dream stirred the anger of his brothers, what in the world is he thinking telling them the second dream is going to do? If Joseph was unwise and fair in sharing that first dream, then I'd even go so far as to say that he was sinning. In, in telling them the second dream, because all it's going to do is provoke anger. And notice, though, some of the differences with this dream, right? In the second dream, you have the 11 stars bowing to Joseph, just like you had 11 sheaves bowing to Joseph in the, in the, the first dream. But now you also have the sun and the moon. Those are added elements. Look at verse 10. It says, but when he, Joseph, told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Joseph tells his father about the dream, and Jacob interprets it to be that uh, the the 11 stars are are the brothers and that the sun and the moon uh, are he and his wife. And yet, you finally see Jacob actually getting annoyed at Joseph. It says he rebuked him. He was annoyed. Now we look back knowing, most of us knowing this whole story, right? We know what is in store for Joseph. Uh, We know that these dreams do indeed ring of of prophetic events. And and we're going to see everything uh, come perfectly uh, fulfilled because a day is going to come in Joseph's life, as we'll see in the weeks to come, where these things uh, do happen. When Joseph eventually becomes exalted as a leader in Egypt, his brothers are going to come to him and they are going to bow before him. And as one of the rulers in Egypt, Joseph is going to have authority over his dad. But for now, the story leaves us with this final note. Verse 11 says, And his brothers 
were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So the brothers simply grow in their murderous envy against Joseph, but Jacob is left wondering if there's something more to his dreams. So, so he keeps it in mind. And as he'll eventually come to find out, these dreams do have their origin in God. Because in spite of Jacob's favoritism, God used Joseph in a mighty way. God used Joseph's family of origin in a mighty way. God's plan for Joseph leads him to eventually become the means of salvation by which he would deliver his own family, regardless of anything else that's going on here, regardless of the family's dysfunction, regardless of his own arrogance or his own ignorance or his own naivety, regardless of his brother's hatred. God's plans for Joseph are not going to get thwarted in any way. In fact, it's this very dysfunction and disaster that God is actually going to work in and through to accomplish his purposes. Now, many of us have read Joseph's story many times. We know the details. We know what will happen in that episode years later when the family falls and bows before him. But what's interesting is that in these 11 verses of Genesis 37, and even actually throughout the rest of Genesis 37, God isn't mentioned once. Joseph is actually the one named dozens of times. But make no mistake, see the theme of this chapter and the theme of every chapter that follows in the life of Joseph is about God. It's about God accomplishing his sovereign purpose in the midst of, uh, of tremendous hostility and, and opposition. When things looked their worst, God was there controlling everything. God was there in the middle of all of it. Nothing happened to Joseph. Nothing was happening to Joseph. Nothing was going to happen to Joseph apart from the sovereign will of God. Nothing happened to him simply by the whim of man. Nothing happened to him simply by chance. All Joseph gets every single day of his life is the providence of God. And that's what every single one of God's children get every single day of our lives. We get the providence of God. It's the inheritance of every saint who has been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So the reminder for you and for me this morning is that God's plan for our future, God's plan for your future is not determined by your family's past. See, when I was 17 years old, I had no clue at all God would be leading me, me, to become a pastor. If you were here to tell a 17-year-old version of me what I'd be doing even now, 17 years later, I probably would have laughed in your face. For one thing, my greatest fear is public speaking, so God definitely has a sense of humor with that. But honestly, I would have went through a litany of reasons, litany of reasons as to why God can't use me. God can't use someone as stubborn as me. God can't use someone as angry as me. God can't use someone as anxious as me. God can't use someone as depressed as me. And on and on and on. God's not interested in someone with as little Bible knowledge as me. God is not interested in someone who stinks at school and is a really slow reader. God's not interested in someone who has a hard time memorizing things. God can't use someone like me. I'm stubborn. I'm messed up. I'm an awful sinner. After all, isn't he just looking for well-adjusted people that come from good homes? Little did I know all the amazing things God had in store. Little did I know all the things he had planned for my life and for my family's life in spite of all the problems and dysfunction, even in the midst of all the problems and all the dysfunction. God brought healing and restoration to me and my father. You would never know it now. We're best friends when you see us interact. God led me down a path that 
led to, to me eventually meeting Laura and now eventually and now having two amazing little girls. He sovereignly worked uh, to, to bring my sisters and I closer together. We're, we were all best friends. He's, and he's given me so many, so many glimpses of his providence in all of it. He's given me the opportunity to baptize both of my sisters. He's allowed me to disciple and baptize uh, a, a friend who actually would, was the one who would become my brother-in-law. Um, so many incredible opportunities. I get to serve with all of them. He gave me the incredible privilege to stand before my parents um, and, and just renew their vows after 35 years of marriage. And that whole vow renewal was just a testimony of the grace of God because not one of us should even be here right now. God has developed my older sister into an incredible mom, wife, and a worship leader. Uh, she, he's worked on my younger sister and uh, probably still has a long way to go, but I'm just kidding. She's back there. She could mute me probably. But it, she's now a, a biblical counselor, and I mean, it's, it really is such a, an amazing thing that blows my mind. I just, I, it's so awesome getting to look back at the last 17 years and see, wow, God, you really are a master chess player. You are such, you are the captain of my soul, the captain of my family. I trust you. God is so good, amen? amen? See, make no mistake, there's nothing particularly special about me. There's nothing particularly special about Joseph. You know who is special in the story? God. God's the hero of the story. He's the hero of every story. He's the hero of Joseph's story. He's the hero of my story. And he should be the hero of your story too. So if you think God can't use you or isn't interested in using you because of your past, because of your family, because of whatever objections you raise in your mind, think again. Because if God truly is sovereign, which he is, his plans for your tomorrows have no bearing on the yesterdays of your life or your family's life. This means that God's plan for you is greater than your family's dysfunction. Right? Just as we saw with Joseph. He didn't have the greatest father. His father was messed up. He made, Jacob made a lot of mistakes. He went against God's plans for monogamy. He had four wives. That caused so many problems. He, he, he fostered a climate where there was severe jealousy and, and drama. He, he was frustratingly passive some chapters earlier when his daughter was raped. And, and, and on and on and on, you get so many things at Jacob and you just want to smack him upside the head and be like, dude, get it right. And yet, God was still working. But... God. So maybe you come from a family with angry or abusive parents. Maybe you're not too proud of, of your past. Or maybe you're still in a situation where your parents continue to do dumb things to you. My encouragement to you is, uh, you know, you, you, can get, you can get angry at them. You can get bitter at them. You can look at them and blame them for uh, the ways they didn't protect you, the things they should have given to you that they didn't. You can do all those things. Or you can forgive them and you can look at God and say, God, I trust you and you sovereignly placed me in this family for a reason and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna follow you. And allow yourself, allow God to enable you to forgive your parents, your family, whoever it is in your life that needs to be forgiven. Because if he's going to move you forward, that's a necessary 
necessary element. So trust God, knowing that he sovereignly placed you exactly where he wants you to be. So be used by him as a channel of his love in that situation. Thank him because you received his grace and forgiveness because of Christ. And that same grace and forgiveness that you received, you can now extend to others. And even though you won't understand everything, even though you don't see the end from the beginning, you can't see the, 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 the clarity and all the chaos and all the fog and all the confusion, thank God because you can know that he will work every single situation for your good and for his glory. God's plan for you in Christ is greater than your family's dysfunction. His plan for you is greater than your own ignorance. And his plan for you is greater even than the rejection of others. See, Joseph was rejected. He experienced envy. He experienced hatred. He experienced the rejection of his own brothers. And we'll see next week just how deep their hatred truly is. But even even in their hatred, even in their rejection of Joseph, God's plan remained untouched. God's plan remained unchanged. God's plan remained unharmed. That's the same thing for you and for me. God's plan for you is not contingent upon others accepting you. It's not contingent upon your past. It's not contingent upon your own mistakes. And to really see this, we need to look at the cross. See, those who crucified the Lord Jesus hated him. They rejected his claims to be the Messiah. They accused him of blasphemy because he claimed to be the son of God. So they crucified him. Well, just as Joseph's brothers didn't understand that the fulfillment of Joseph's dream that fueled their hatred was actually going to be central to their salvation, so did those who crucified Jesus. They had no idea that the one they were crucifying was actually a necessary step for God bringing about redemption and salvation for millions of people to come after that. But thanks be to God that even after Jesus was crucified, three days later, he rose victoriously, thereby providing us salvation and proving that God could take the very, very worst thing in human history, the death of God himself, the son of God himself, that he could take that very, very worst thing in human history and out of that bring about the greatest thing in human history, your salvation and my salvation. That is a testimony to God's grace, amen? Church, God's plan for your future is not determined by your family's past. Please get that. Trust God, forgive them, and allow him to work in your life, to do whatever it is that he wants to accomplish in and through you. And when you're weak, he's not. When it's difficult, ask him for strength. He'll give you all the strength you need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, Lord, no matter how messed up our families are, past, present, even uh, future, Lord, that none of this means in any way, shape, or form that you have forsaken us. God, that none of this means that some cloud has come over us that we can't escape. Lord, help us to uh, just ignore those things as lies, Lord, and to see you for who you truly are, Lord, that you are above all of our circumstances, that you are above all of our difficulties, all of our challenges. Lord, and you see the end from the beginning perfectly. God, so I pray, 
Lord, for uh, those in this room who might see themselves in Jacob's story. Lord, I pray that they would, even in these moments, Lord, look to you for grace and forgiveness. God, because even for the parents in here that, that, have, that have messed things up, Lord, that your grace is sufficient to cover that, Lord. And, and Lord, the moment that, they've turned, that they turn to you, you cast their sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, so to help um, all of us Jacobs, Lord, to not be ridden with guilt and shame over our past mistakes, but to stand upon the truth that we stand forgiven because of what Christ has done in us and for us, Lord, and that uh, we, we ask that you'd simply change us to love our children, to love our families the way you love us, Lord. God, for those in this room who are the brothers, God, I pray that we would just release to you all of our anger, all of our hatred, all of our frustration, Lord, all of our envy, all of our rage, all of our jealousy. God, take it all right now. We give it to you, Lord. We don't want to carry that around. We can't carry that around. And Lord, just as your cross was good enough to cover our sins, Lord, your cross was good enough to cover the sins that were committed against us. God, so even right now, I pray, Lord, that you would extend forgiveness to those of us who were driven by that kind of hatred and envy and jealousy. Lord, and for those in here who might be a Joseph, subject to dysfunction and pain from our families, Lord, help us to forgive them, to love them, and to trust you. Lord, help us to know full well that in the midst of even the craziest of seasons, you're present. Nothing upsets you. Nothing catches you by surprise. Nothing startles you. Nothing scares you. Lord, you know the end from the beginning. You know all of our days. You know the numbers of the hairs on our head. Lord, you know it all. God, with that knowledge, we trust you to do what only you can do in our lives. And God, I pray that in this church you would raise people who love you and, and serve you despite of their past, Lord, and even because of you working through all of this, those bad situations to bring about good. Thank you that you are restorer, that you are reconciler, that you are healer. We love you and we thank you that the only thing we are products of are products of your grace. Not products of our past, not products of anything else, Lord. We are products of Jesus. And may that reflect every day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's children said, Amen.